Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. I'm Mitchell. I'm uh, tapping in this week to interview, and I've got with me David Bell, who really needs no introduction, but uh, why don't we, we get one anyways, David? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get going? Hi, Mitchell, mate. Cheers for having me on. Um, my name's David. Uh, I am the, well, I, I kind of was the growth director at TradingView. I still do a lot of that. Um, but I, I now do market data at TradingView, some of the sales side still. Uh, and compliance. I run Macrodesiac, which is a, a research service in kind of the macrosphere for uh, for retail traders uh, and basically whoever. Actually, we've got a couple of fund managers and and stuff like that in there. Um, and also, uh, what else do I do? I trade, obviously. Um, I take a bit of a longer term perspective, so it's less intraday stuff uh, and more longer term bets um, than probably what a lot of people uh, do. So I, I look more at you know maybe a, a week all the way up to maybe even nine months a year a lot of the time so kind of a varied time frame within there but much longer than intraday basically awesome yeah i'm i'm not much of a day trader myself i think it's a, a risky game can you talk a little bit more about macrodesiac you know why why you started it and what your long-term goals with it are yeah for sure so i was a i was a broker and i was writing a daily note um on linkedin it's very, very basic, you know, I was on LinkedIn, you get maybe 2000 characters, something like that. Um, but then I noticed that a lot of people who were more experienced than me, I was maybe 26, 27 at this time, they were a lot more experienced than me, they had more uh, skin in the game, in terms of, you know, actual practical experience on a desk in institutions, they were talking to me on the same level. Um, and I was saying it, I was kind of talking about these market concepts and, and what my thoughts were on the market very conversationally, you know, as if we're chatting right now and probably how we're going to chat, you know, through this podcast. Um, and people finding a lot of value from it because it wasn't the same kind of, how do you put it? Um, the same kind of corporate speak that's, that's out there quite a lot. You know, I was talking to you as if we're, we're just at a bar or, you know, speaking with a mate. Um, and so people enjoyed that. So then I, I started it literally just with a landing page and MailChimp. Um, and then now we write articles daily um, on everything macro. So, you know, it's, it's grown quite nicely and I'm, I'm looking to expand it further and further as well. That's great. Yeah, that's a, that's a great product. Uh, especially I've, I've only been in like markets and stuff for about two years now. It's hard to find content that's not just full of jargon. So that's a great thing you're doing there. Um, so let's get into the current environment. Uh, this week, it seems like everyone's been on the, the edge of their seats about Powell at Jackson Hole tomorrow. What are your thoughts on that? Do you uh, What kind of rate hike do you expect or do you expect no rate hike? What are you looking for there? I reckon it'll go 50. Um, I've, been, I've been quite hawkish throughout this year, but I think he'll, he'll go 50. One thing that I think the Fed is aware of now, though, and maybe why we saw equities take a little bit of a turn, uh, just at the kind of start of this week, end of last week, I think, yeah. Um, it's because we started seeing that, that you know, th those prints out of the UK and Germany. We saw the UK CPI print tick up to 10.1%. I think the expected was 9.2%. German PPI, so producer price index, 37.2%. And the expected was roughly 32%. Um, and then if we contrast that with the print that the U.S. just had at 8.5%, you know, it kind of looks to me like it's a little bit of an anomalous print 
you know, it was a little bit softer, maybe for the reason that airfares had decreased by 8%. You know, um, gasoline had decreased quite rapidly throughout, uh, throughout July. So, you know, these kind of reasons could lead to a slightly higher CPI print, you know, uh, next month, um, which the Fed may have on their mind, you know, all's not quite well just yet. Um, and I think, you know, we will go 50, um, but I also wouldn't price out 75. In short, I don't know. You never know with these things, but it's more likely to be 50 than 75 in my view. Do you think the market could go lower with rate hikes or do you think it's already been priced in? No, the, you know, I think this is where we start to see uh, the, the growth issues take, take hold. There's, there's a really good, um, there's a really good uh, kind of diagram called HOPE, right? So H, housing, O is orders. So new orders start to slip, but firstly, housing starts to go as a, a rate sensitive measure of the economy. Then you get new orders starting to go, which slows, shows, you know, consumers starting to take the, the hit from, from, uh, from the slowing economy. Um, and then you get P, which is producers. And then you get E, which is employment. So everyone's still focused on employment. And we had, you know, another good um, uh, jobless claims just now, a couple of hours ago, I think about an hour or two ago. Um, so it, it beat estimates. It was, I think it was 242K and the estimate was slightly higher at like 255 maybe. Don't, don't know. I just look at beat or miss. I, I don't really care about specific numbers. Um, and so, you know, if we take that, that diagram of that hope diagram, we're right at the start because the housing market has only started to slip. You know, we had the National Association of House Builders come and say that uh, the US is in a housing recession. So that's kind of the first part starting. We've seen the fulfilled inventory. So we're seeing, you know, maybe new orders start to slip with, you know, your Walmart, Target, etc., saying um, that, uh, yeah, uh, their inventories are massively stocked. So, you know, orders aren't being fulfilled. Less likely for new orders to be fulfilled if inventories are stocked. So we are starting to see that slight degradation or that slight decline through that uh, through that kind of equation, if you like, that hope equation. Um, you know, I think employment is the big one, though. It really, really is the big one. And I think, you know, we, we get to a stage where, you know, Harker today even said that he's willing to go restrictive in policy and he thinks they should go restrictive. Um, so I don't think anything's priced in yet. You know, if we look at the Taylor rule, um, I think the Taylor rule would suggest that interest rates should be up at maybe uh, seven or eight percent, which is quite crazy for us to think of considering the last 10 years, you know, we've had ultra low interest rates. But we are in a slightly different regime mm -hmm. at the moment. So and I say at the moment very, very carefully because things could slip the other way very quickly. But I don't think that they'd be they're, they're so willing to to lower rates as fast as they have previously because they're so afraid of this inflation scare yeah i that's a lot to unpack there so uh let's start with the employment um something i've been Sorry. looking at and uh just not the unemployment rate itself uh oh yeah it's the connection's a little wonky here but um once it goes up it should be fine but uh i'm like i've been looking at the labor force participation rate it's not where it was pre-covid um, real wages are still down, labor turnover, you know, there's not been as much new hiring. So do you think there's like credibility to the idea that maybe the labor market is in worse shape than it may seem? 
Yes, I, I, I do definitely think that there's something to that. Um, but the ironic thing is, is that I think there's still a large proportion of uh, workers who left the labor force foreign uh, voluntarily as well. So they did retire. I do agree with you that there is probably also a, a proportion of them who are just basically forced out of the labor force as well. Um, so they're not actually counted within the metrics whatsoever. So there, there definitely is that. Um, but yeah, I, th I think there is always an issue with the, the, the measure of unemployment. There's always going to be, you know, different uh, idiosyncrasies within the, the unemployment measure um, at different times. Um, but I think one key thing to note is the increase in unemployment in the tech sector. Um, I actually noticed on Google Trends that if you Google um, unemployment benefits, or I think it was might have been uh, welfare or unemployment benefits and something like that, um, and uh, unemployment, there's actually a massive disparity. So people are looking out for unemployment on the Google searches, but the searches for unemployment benefits is actually flat. So I think there's kind of like a bit of a... Uh, uh what's the word uh sort of like a it's, it's a too early a call to make that people are making in terms of unemployment and the the data's not actually reflecting yet unemployment uh increasing interesting i, I see that's a it's a valuable perspective um as far as inflation do you think it can be tamed like i i doubt we see two percent cpi again um just the way you know G debt to GDP in America is so high. When you look at the Fed funds rate historically, like this, this is a rate hike for ants. Is it possible to get inflation under control? Do you see Powell going full Paul Volcker and, and hiking rates to the moon? Is that, is that possible? I, I, th I definitely think Powell's very sincere in, in what he said um, with regards to be willing to put the economy into a downturn. Um, I think there's no doubt about it. Because at this stage, I think that is the only way in which they will get inflation under control. The supply side is, of course, an issue. Absolutely. Um, but I think, you know, there, there's there's real there's real tangible effects that has come out of the, the pandemic in terms of how behavior has changed and, and things like that. And I really do think that if we look at the housing market, for example, that is an example of an absolutely ridiculous increase in demand stemming from the monetization of debt you know printing money and then putting it into the real economy rather than keeping it on corporate balance sheets or bank balance sheets and that kind of thing like it was pre-2020 um, so there's a very nuanced difference between qe and what has happened over the pandemic um, which mmt's would probably you know shout at me for but it's the truth we can see it all with our own eyes um and i think that you know they will have to really, really, yeah, trash the economy. I think the Phillips curve might even come back into perspective. You know, it was very well used in the 70s, the relationship between unemployment and inflation. Um, for the last 30, 40 years, it's actually been, you know, kind of debunked, if you like. But that's because inflation's been flat, you know. Um, so I think the Phillips curve will start to get a resurgence, actually. And I think that's what would happen. I think... A Morgan Stanley economist back in February or March said that the Fed will have to get unemployment to 10% to tame inflation. I don't know. It could no, be on the I cards. It. It, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you know, I've, 
I mean, I've only been alive 20 years, but this, this kind of inflation, even in just CPI, which to me is like a loaded metric being this high, it's, uh, it's crazy, man. Um, a little bit more on housing. Do you think, you know, we'll see a, a huge market tank, like a correlation to one type of moment there? Or is it going to be a slow grind down? Well, I, th I think we're, we're seeing the market currently, uh, currently fall. And I think the best perspective to view that via is rather than looking at any housing data is to look at uh, the house builders ETF, which is XHB. Um, so I'm just going to get it up on my screen just so I can exactly see what the price is, if my computer mm -hmm. would like to work properly. It's not working at the moment for some reason. I don't know why. Typical. Here we go. XHB. So Spider Home Builder ETF. Um, so, yeah, I mean, since the start of the year, it's down... Let's have a look. Start of the year, it is down by about 25%. So, oh, you know, wow, that's yeah. quite a considerable drop um, in terms of, you know, what people think the maybe profitability of house builders looks like. They don't think that it looks good in a rising rate environment. Mm -hmm. So then what you have to consider what that means for the wealth effect what that means for credit creation. I think we've seen the largest increase in equity release um, since 2008, probably because people are having to do that, take money out of their homes, take equity out of their homes to afford energy bills, to afford their necessities, things like that. Credit card debt has spiked massively. So, you know, we're seeing that kind of change in house values versus the change in revolving credit as well. Um, and you know the amount that people need to borrow purely to pay for you know the bare necessities these days. Um, so I think you know looking at house builders is a fantastic proxy for house prices because house builders only want to build in a rising market. They don't want to build in a market that's decreasing. So mm -hmm. if the perception is that you know house builders aren't going to be profitable, I think that the the overall perception is that you know the housing market's not going to do well for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's that's great. I've never really thought to look at at house builders because they're sort of you know they are they're long real estate. So if they don't think it's going to be great in the next two three years, then then that's a, a pretty good idea of where things are headed. Um, exactly. On housing, uh, recently on Macrodisiac, you you wrote a little bit about the Chinese housing market. Can you talk a little bit about the Chinese economy? Um, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they've been doing you know the draconian COVID lockdowns nonstop. How does that that whole situation in China affect globally because they're they're a huge market. Yeah, so um, the the Chinese market. I wrote an article uh, back in March 2021, I think, that basically said that Evergrande were completely, you know, uh, ruined, and we saw throughout the rest of that year that they they were in fact ruined. Um, the same with a lot of others, you know, RNF Guang uh, Guangzhou, RNF Land, basically who's another developer, we just recently found out that they're having to default alongside all the other Chinese firms that are having to def default as well. So, you know, there's um, a lot of issues going on in China. Now, the knock-on effects are actually really, really broad because what we've seen perhaps as a kind of a tacit um, extension of the Belt and Road Initiative 
are all of these private property developments occurring in major cities across the world. So I'll give you an example. In London, we've got uh, the Nine Elms development, which is uh, a really, really big development in a place called Vauxhall by the Thames River. Um, and this was done by CC, CC Land and RNF, funny enough. Now, they had to sell, sell the development at a, at a, a nine-figure loss. I think it might have been about 600 million they lost on it um, because the occupancy rate was only at 40% by the time the whole thing opened. Now, if you can imagine that China's been doing this a hell of a lot around the world, I think there's a lot of money that has been lost in foreign developments now. Um, and this is also having a knock-on effect back in China. Mm -hmm. um, I think we saw in... In Hunan, the Hunan province, you know, this, this has only happened in a couple of uh, regional banks in China, so Hunan uh, and a few other places. Um, but you know, the, the liquidity just wasn't there for people to get their money out of the banks. Um, all of these wealth products that are tied up in property in China, again, it's a liquidity cascade. You know, things are fine when the economy is booming, when things are going well, but when things go the other way, it's a really, really big issue. Um, and I think that, you know, things will come to a head in China. It's not going to be very pretty, but I don't think it's going to be like a Lehman moment like many people were talking about last year. It'll be a very, very slow grind. And I actually think that the working age population in China has reached a peak, a massive, massive peak. And it did that about five or so years ago, maybe in 2017, I think. Um, and I think they're going to go the same way as Japan. They've got very, very similar debt and population demographics and, and data as Japan did in 1990. And in 1990, Japan had the lost decade, which meant that, you know, they had to introduce massive QE at the end of, um, at the, end of the, the decade in 1998, I think it was. Um, and then, you know, they've had really bad inflation since then, you know, relatively dampened growth and aging population. And that's something that China is going to have to contend with as well. You know, the, the one child policy, um, the lack of girls, you know, all creates longer term issues. And <laughs> what will be interesting now is if, is if Xi mm -hmm. faces any, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, revolt because he wants to stay in power. But I think there could come a time when Xi faces a revolt for sure. Interesting. That's uh. I've, I've been reading Ray Dalio's book recently, and he, he seems to take the opposite position where, you know, he thinks China's going to be the next world power. But uh, I, like, I like to hear that, right. that that's what you think. Um, that, so, I feel like this is a good so segue on, into, so Japan. I was, I was yeah, just going to yeah, say on Dalio, on Dalio. So um, the Chinese holding, the, the holding of Chinese bonds, um, the CCP wants foreign holders to increase the holding of Chinese bonds. Um, and I think this is why Dalio and BlackRock have been so pro-China over the last, you know, couple of, last year or two specifically. Uh, that's, that's one of the primary reasons. I was actually speaking with someone at a large brokerage here in London just yesterday who'd mentioned this as well. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense as to why, you know, BlackRock and, and Dalio want to get involved in China so heavily. Because they can make a shitload of money out of it, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that seems to be the, the driving force of a lot of decisions. Um, so you talked about Japan and, you know, their massive QE trying to do yield curve control. You think China's going to do the same thing? Recently, the dollar has, has flipped the euro. So what's your long-term thesis on how all these fiat currencies play out? Because to me, I only, 
I only see like endless QE. Um, I believe I, in a past interview you said you, you know you subscribe to the the dollar milkshake theory. I don't know if you use that word, but is that true? And like, why do you believe the dollar is going to be the dominant currency? It, it already um, is, but in the even more so going forward. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think when we the, the the chart that always comes up when people are talking about there's two charts that come up when we're talking about the dollar actually. Um, the, the the first one is that the dollar's had a massive decline since you know the 1900s and it's lost 99 percent of its value. It might have done that, but in reality, people have earned more. Um, you know, if you were to have invested one dollar back then to now, you'd have still made money um, because you earn interest on it over that time period. You know, of course, if you leave something under your mattress, then it's not going to make any extra money. But that's just not the way of the world. <laughs> but the, the real one that I'm, I'm referring to is the one where it shows the length of time in which a reserve currency has stayed in power for. Um, and I know this is a crypto podcast, um, but I like to I do like to bring objectivity to things. Um, the way that, of, that the world has changed through the digital age in terms of trade, in terms of globalization and things like this is I think globalization isn't just trade these days in terms of like physical ships moving things. There's also the globalization of the cyber networks, um, because if we consider, you know, even a stock exchange, OK, if, if you're if if you're the CME, for example, and you've got an ES contract that is traded all over the world, but also trade. But that at the end of the day comes back to the CME. It's the largest contract in the world, pretty much, or one of the largest contracts in the world. Um, so the cyber, the way in which cyber has changed globalization and the flow of funds and things like this is massive compared to those other periods of reserve currencies. Right. Um, and so I think the, the way that the dollar has managed to intertwine itself into every single facet of the world is huge. Now, something else that is massively key too, and this relates to the, the dollar um, and, its, and its dominance, is whenever there is a global crisis and liquidity dries up, where do central banks run to? They run to the Fed for their swap lines. And traditionally, it's been done via a currency mm -hmm. swap where, uh, you know, they, they'd, they'd swap a notional amount of their currency for the dollar to give it back at another time, you know, and then make a few basis points or whatever. As of July 2020, they've changed it to uh, a, a standing facility called the FEMA. Now, all central banks have to do is swap their treasuries for dollars. So if you can imagine if China now gets into a bit of a, a struggle and they need liquidity, they're the second largest holder of treasuries in the world. What are they going to do? They're going to go to the Fed, say, here's, you know, $100 billion worth of, of treasuries, or there might be a little cap on it. I can't remember exactly. Um, can we have some dollars? And then they'll be fine. And this is actually one of my big theses for uh, when the dollar walls end its bull run is when central banks start tapping this FEMA facility quite heavily. And it's one of the uh, it's one of the key identifiers, I think, of a true crisis as well, or when we will get a true crisis, because, you know, the the, the money markets are kind of showing that there's tight, tight dollar liquidity. You know, I think LIBOR is three months dollar LIBOR is up at like 2.6, 2.7%. So um, it's tight. It's very, very tight out there to fund uh, to fund the dollar, basically. 
So you might hear about dollar funding quite a lot, um, but it is a very kind of visceral thing. And even Arthur Hayes just yesterday, he wrote an article on uh, Bitcoin being just a proxy for dollar liquidity. And I've been saying this for the last three years, you know, and I've, I, I've kind of liked this. It's, it's not really a meme, but it's, it's very, very true in terms of looking at euro dollar futures as a function of interest rate risk, which is also a function of dollar funding costs at the end of the day. Um, and so, yeah, everything at the end of the day comes down to dollar liquidity. Um, and Bitcoin is just a very high beta representation of dollar liquidity. Interesting. So uh, how do you, because obviously this is a Bitcoin podcast. This is, um, you know, when I see something like, regardless of, you know, what people think about Russia and the Ukraine and what's going on there, when America freezes Russian dollar assets, to me, I look at that. I'm like, this is why Bitcoin. And I think other countries are going to see, you know, if we piss off America, if we do something that they don't like, they can freeze our dollars. So that's where I think, you know, the dollars regime ends and Bitcoin starts. Do you have any thoughts on that? I guess it depends on uh, the prisoner's dilemma at the end of the day. So uh, let's take the prisoner's dilemma, which is you've got two prisoners in in an interrogation room or one prisoner in one room, one prisoner in, a, in another. Um, and they have to work out whether they cooperate with each other or they don't cooperate with each other. Now, in terms of the, the world's composition, I think most countries are going to cooperate whether they're really aligned with America or not on the fact that Russia did invade Ukraine, right? So in terms of actually, you know, the dollar's dominance ending, I think it would depend on those countries either cooperating or not. So if you've got, you know, 90% of countries cooperating on something like uh, and agreeing that, you know, Russia's access to dollars should be cut off, uh, you know, unless you've got 90% of the country saying, no, that's a bad thing, then, you know, I, I think it won't exactly end in that way. Sorry, I just had to throw the keys. Interesting. Yeah, that's sort of similar to um, not. <laughs> oh, you're good. Uh, Michael Saylor always talks about how he thinks, you know, the dollar and Bitcoin will coexist. Um, I personally, I, I guess I've never really thought about like, I just, I don't see countries cooperating on that, that scale. But, um, you know, I, I could be very wrong with that. Um, yeah, so uh, overall, um, where do you, uh, where do you think the market's going, you know, in the next the next six to, to 12 months? You know, do you think the Fed will pivot at some point? And what, what are you looking for to see see that? Um, I think six to 12 months, there's a lot of things that can happen between then in a market where volatility uh, could amp up massively any any second. Um, I think the, 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 the one area that I'm really looking at is actually less so the US and more the Eurozone. Um, I just saw a data point today showing that hedge funds are most uh, short most against Italian bonds since 2008. Now, in my view, this is a uh, this is kind of a proxy trade against the ECB because the ECB just recently, so the European Central Bank, they just recently came out with an anti-fragmentation tool, um, which means that they are buyers of Italian debt, lower the yield, um, and sellers of German debt to to increase German uh, yields so that the spread between both lowers. 
Um, so this is basically, in my view, um, a bet against the ECB, which is very, very interesting, very dangerous. I think the last, the last bet that we saw like this was probably George Soros against the Bank of England in 1992, 91 maybe. Um, and so it's a very, very bold one, but I, I think it's one that could indeed come off. You know, I do think it's one that could come off because I think the Eurozone is completely in a mess, you know, especially with the energy situation and especially with Germany being in a very, very tough situation as well. You know, I mentioned the producer price index being at 37.2%. That's not good. And Germany is also one of the, like China, factories of the world, you know, massive car industry, massive, massive uh industrial production center and so if their industrial production is slipping that also shows broad-based weakness globally um so yeah i think there's real real issues in europe and it, europe could actually be one of the reasons that the fed pivots if if europe goes because that would have to uh they'd have to increase liquidity you know they couldn't they couldn't just leave liquidity where it is yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I'm looking at this chart right here. It's electricity prices in the euro era and euro area, and it it looks like a shitcoin. It's just like going going straight up the last two years. It's it's insane. It's insane. It was below 100, and now it's almost 600. Yeah, so that's that's gonna you know being an American, I guess this is kind of a stereotype. We we sort of blind to the what's going on in the rest of the world. So I'm glad you were able to you know put that perspective to me, and because uh. <laughs> Being in markets, you know, you can't just look at just America. You gotta, you gotta see everything globally. You were talking about, you know, the digital age earlier, and uh, I feel like this is a, a good segue into, you know, there's the whole college loan bailout, whatever going on. Obviously, that's a terrible idea. You know, you're just passing off the cost to other people. But what are your thoughts on on higher education overall, especially now that you know information is free on the internet? Um, I think higher education always has its place. Um, it, it certainly does. But I think it depends, obviously, on what you go to study. Like, I, I don't see there being a reason to go in and for, for many people going to study sociology, for example, in its current form. I think it's religious rather than educational. Um, I think that's, that it's very similar for quite a few different... Um, topics and and you know uh and disciplines of study i think even english has a lot of the same crossovers with psych psychology sociology anthropology um a lot of kind of postmodern stuff going on which ends up with these kind of views that don't have any objectivity or, or truth in them and of course truth can change but there's uh there's there's truth changing and then there's literally changing the truth to suit your own goals where it can be disproven that this new truth is totally false you know or it can be proven that this new truth is false and i think there's a lot of that going on at university and it permits very victim style behavior um and i think it's it, it you can tell what is right and wrong people can tell what is right and wrong um but they don't need it to be sent into policy in the way it is for example um and being be told that things are right when they're clearly not not right 
Do you see what I mean? Even speaking about it and thinking about it, it gets you kind of tongue twisted because so much of what I'm thinking about and the, 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 the things that you can see going on around you are just totally wrong. But it's the way that they kind of almost gaslight you into thinking it's right, you know? Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, I just I just graduated uh, from university a couple months ago, and so I, I just went through the thick of it. Um, even in my, my economics classes, you know, it's all like modern monetary theory, Keynesian stuff. So um, I see it's less valuable than I when I went in originally. Um, how did you learn about markets yourself and, and get into trading? Did, were you mostly self-taught or, or did university contribute a lot? So, yeah, I went to university, did economics as well. Um, but the, the funny thing is, is that I, I started trading at 18, not successfully, but I was trading at, at 18. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you'd see in markets occurring, um, it, it wouldn't be what you're taught in the lectures or the seminars or anything like that. You know, it would be totally different. Like I was told QE was meant to be inflationary. And I was debating at the time that, well, it, it's not, you know, you can see that inflation's not ticked up. Um, and the t lecturers would saying, yeah, but it is, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, but it's not what's actually happening. Um, and things like that would just really piss me off because it then ends up being a case of, okay, why am I doing this if this isn't actually how things work in reality? So a lot of it's just trial and error. You know, I'm glad I went to uni, um, but I can't say it's, you know, necessarily... I can't say the content itself has helped me. I think being able to think and challenge things has definitely helped me. Um, but the content, for sure, was was part useful, a lot of it not really. Yeah, I, I pretty much more or less feel the same way. It uh, it was nice. It put ideas in my head that I would go and research further because I'm like, what they're saying doesn't make any sense. And so uh, that, that led me down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, personally. Um, do you have any, anything you want to plug before we head out? Yeah, just jump onto macrodesiac.com, sign up for free. Um, you can jump on the premium if you like. Um, it's £29 a month, um, so nice and cheap. Jump in the Discord. There's really, really smart guys in there. Um, and I write a couple of times a month to you about my key thoughts. Um, keeps you nice and grounded, maybe. Gives you a good perspective, nice conversational. But yeah, do, do what you like. <laughs> just sign up to the free if you like, whatever. <laughs> thank you man I, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your thoughts with us uh, thank you everybody for listening make sure to like and subscribe and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week